take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. Can't miss it. Second longest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. And just a few books later, the book of Isaiah. And out of respect to the Word of God, I'd like you to stand with me as we read a precious passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 19. Make plans to join us tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll be preaching for Revelation 4. If you've always wanted to know what heaven's going to be all about, you're going to learn about that tonight. You'll learn about who's in heaven. You'll learn about what we do in heaven. You're going to learn about what, who, 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 all the things essential to heaven. You want to learn about that, things you probably even, never even thought about before. And you want to join that service tonight. Isaiah 19, I'm going to read from verse 21 to 25. And at home, I, I encourage you to read out loud with your family from the King James Version Bible. As we see a very important and encouraging message of prophecy. And the Bible says in verse 21, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, and they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord and shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. And that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Just let me park there. Assyria today is modern-day Iran. And the Assyrian shall come to Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. What an incredible prophecy. I purposely left out reading verse 20, which actually needs to be part of this reading, because I want to save that to when I get that portion of Scripture. This morning we are studying the prophecy of God about Egypt. You think about Egypt and you think about the Nile River. You think about Egypt and you think about the pyramids. As a preacher, when I think about Egypt, I think about my good friend, church planter Edgar Fagali and your mission funds that have a part in reaching the Egyptian people with the gospel. And God here is talking to us about Egypt and Israel and he describes Israel at a future day and time as being a blessing in the land. 
Now, quite honestly, in the Middle East, which is a hotbed of turmoil and war, the centrality of hatred is against Israel. The Arabic, Islamic nations, for the most part, are hostile to Israel. They do not see Israel as a blessing in the land. They see Israel as a curse to their land. But the Bible says, the day coming, at the end of the great tribulation, before we enter into the 1,000-year reign of Christ, that Israel shall be a blessing in the land. And we're going to see some exciting things this morning. And I encourage you to get your notes out, get a pen out, get your notes out, because we're going to find out God's plan for the nations, and one specifically here, God's plan for the nation of Egypt, and what its application is to your life and mine. Father, we thank you that when I read about Egypt and the nations of the world and the study, we've studied about Assyria and Moab, we've glanced at Ethiopia, I'm reminded in all these nations, that is the world. And the Bible says, God, for God so loved the world. I'm thankful you love every nation in this world. Nations are made up of people. You love the people of the world. And God, it's hard for us to even imagine when we think of militant, rebellious, hostile states that have even been categorized as tyranny and terrorist states, you love those people too. And God, this morning as we consider the nations in prophecy and some exciting things are about to unfold, captivate our attention, bring every thought captive to the obedience of our Savior Jesus Christ, build us up in doctrine, let me speak this morning as it would be the oracles of God. Stir up our hearts. Draw us closer to you. Sanctify us through your word, for thy word is truth. And through this, the Bible says in verse 20, that he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And thank you this morning that you sent a savior. And he is the great one. And that is Jesus Christ. That is the Lord of glory. He is Christ, a prince and a savior, whom by thy right hand you have exalted. Help me, Lord, this morning to communicate your words so clearly, and so understandably, and so passionately. The Lord, your people will have a great desire to draw near to you, because the Bible says, draw near to me. And I will draw near unto you. We know that your word will not return void unto you. We know that seed that now is being planted in every heart will do a great work. I pray that seed will take deep root where we will be rooted and built up in him. And that, Lord, it will return fruit 25, 1500 fold. Save those this morning who are not sure that they're going to heaven. Revive your people today. Draw us nearer to you, and we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. 
prophecy is about things to come. It is an announcement made about something that only God knows the date in which it will occur. The Bible is a book of prophecy. Sometimes we read the Bible, and even in its own description, there are things hard to understand. But the Bible says God has given us a more sure word. Prophecy is God's word. And perhaps of the books of prophecies, one of the more prominent one is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is prominently quoted over and over again in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Isaiah is a book of prophecy. Isaiah is the Bible in miniature. Isaiah prophesies to us about the birth of Jesus Christ, about the life of Jesus Christ, about the death of Jesus Christ, about the burial of Jesus Christ, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And would you notice this? And it prophesies to us about the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible also prophesies for us about the nations. Think with me for just a minute. What about the nations of the world? What does the Bible have to say about Iran, about Ethiopia, about Turkey, about the Eastern nations, about the other nations that make up the Middle East, the Arabic nations? What about the Western powers? I mean, does God's word tell us something about the nations of the world? And it does. And sometimes there are specific nations God speaks of, and then he kind of blocks them all together. And this morning we're looking at a very important nation, the nation of Egypt. We're looking at Israel and Egypt. Now, I'm going to say this now, and I'll say it again. There are two things you're going to find about Egypt in the Bible and Israel. You're going to find that, for the most part, Egypt is adversarial and oppressive to Israel. Egypt, historically, has been adversarial and oppressive to Israel. The second thing we'll see in Scripture is that we sometimes see Israel going to Egypt for help. Now, wherever you find Egypt in the Bible, it is a great world power economically. It is a great world power politically. Uh, The very first mention of Egypt is over there in the book of Genesis. Whenever we read about Egypt, we read this one thing. We read about if anyone coming from Israel, they're going to Egypt, The Bible always says this, he went down into Egypt. He went down into Egypt. Now mark this down. Egypt is always a picture of the world. It is a picture of the world system. It is a picture of the world process. It is a picture of the world, the world in its covetousness. It is a picture of the world, the, the, you know, just going with the rush of the world, the world philosophy, the world values. If you didn't know, if you didn't know this already, the world is contrary to God. The world is governed by Satan. He's the, he's the God of this world. So Satan is the God of this world, is working through the world philosophy to inundate and cloud our mind. I mean, you think with me for just a moment as we think about our, our sources of news. All the media sources represent the world. The rush to buy a new iPhone is a worldly thought. 
And when we talk about the world, we're talking about the world and its rush, its emphasis, its chase, its desires. The Bible simply tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is of the world, is not of God. But the Bible also tells us the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And I remind you this morning, as we look at Egypt, they're a great world power. And beginning in Genesis, we read there about the great story there about Abraham, that he went down into Egypt when God did not want him to go down to Egypt. We read later on about a grandson of Abraham. And his name was Joseph. And Joseph, his brothers, sold him into slavery. His own flesh and blood. They sold him off for 20 pieces of silver to a caravan of people called the Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites, of course, are part of the Arabic nations and Arabic people. And they were this caravan. They, they bought him and sold him off into Egypt. And a man by the name of Potiphar, who was a great man in Egypt, who was a mighty man, Potiphar bought uh, Joseph, not knowing who Joseph was. And there's this Joseph, this Hebrew this young man, perhaps not older than 17, 18 years of age, in a foreign land, a captive. He's the possession of a man by the name of Potiphar. And the amazing thing is that he goes to the house of Potiphar and he becomes the manager or steward or superintendent over all this man's affairs. He is betrayed. He winds up in prison for two years. He thinks that everybody's forgotten him and he's just resigned that, that at the age of 30 that he's going to be stuck down there. And of all things... The king of Egypt has these bizarre dreams. He can't figure them out. He calls, us his, he calls all of his wise men together, the astrologers and wise men and the men who practice occultism and witchcraft, and none of them could answer that dream. And then one of the men who got released out of prison, who had forgotten about Joseph, he said, oh, I forgot there's a young man. I'm out of prison because of him today. He interpreted my dream. He said, King, I think he can help you. And Joseph came out. He interpreted the dreams. And here's what's going on. I'm going to fast forward it. Joseph, because he correctly interpreted the dream of this Pharaoh and God was in all this, Joseph became the second greatest man in the nation of Egypt. Joseph, Joseph, because of interpretation, was positioned to help prepare Egypt against a major famine that would come. And he positioned Egypt as a great world power. They were the nation that basically, because of Egypt's influence, they were able to help many of the world nations during that time of famine. And Joseph himself became, was called a savior of the world. Now, savior in the sense he kept Egypt from being a victim of that famine there. But Joseph was raised up by God. God had his hand on him. The Spirit of God was upon Joseph. And used him greatly there. Well, later on, Joseph, who had been, who had been uh, disconnected from his family for over 20 years, now God is working through that situation. He's the number two man in all of Egypt. He's grown to become a great sovereign next to Pharaoh, and God works through this famine to bring his father Jacob and all of his other 11 brothers back down to Egypt to meet with them. And God brings about, through all the course of things, a family reunion. Here's what's happening. Down there in Egypt, the nation of Israel, which is just starting out, consisting of only 70 souls, the Bible says, stays down there for 400 years. 
During that period of time of 400 years, they, they, there's a different, different kings rose up in Egypt, kings that did not know Joseph, and they saw this growing, this growing population of Israelites to be a threat to them. What started out with 70 souls down there in Egypt, mushroomed 400 years later into 3 million people, if you can imagine that. And the Israelites were placed in bondage and slavery 400 years before. God told the patriarch Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have a miracle son by the name of Isaac. And through the seed of Isaac, a great nation will materialize. And God described him in Genesis 15, the extensiveness of the boundaries of all this land, which Israel does not have right now. They will one day have it. And he said, this greatness will be like the sand of the seashore. And 40 years later, God has fulfilled and is still fulfilling that prophecy. Three million Jews. Three million Jews. The day came in Exodus chapter 2, after much oppression, they cried out. And God sent them a deliverer by the name of Moses. And you know the story there. God raised up Moses. God sent plagues into Egypt because Egypt was a great idolatrous nation. They worshiped many different gods. Every one of the plagues that we read about in the book of Exodus were a plague against one of the gods they worshiped. They worshiped the Nile River. They worshiped the earth. They worshiped the frogs because the frogs represented fertility. They worshiped the, they worshiped the bulls and cows. They worshiped the rain. They worshiped the hail. They worshiped their crops. I mean, you name it. Every one of the plagues that God sent was against something they worshiped. And it wasn't until the 10th plague that they said, we'll let them go. Egypt said, we'll let Israel go. And just as Israel had made their way out, they barely were out for a couple of days, they came to the banks of the Red Sea. And at that time, the banks of the Red Sea was overflowing. And uh, they could hear the thunderous pounding of chariots and horses. Pharaoh changed his mind. And the princes of, Cher of Egypt changed their mind. And they came out, the entire army, the entire military came out. They came out with several hundred chariots. And they were coming for them. And they could hear them. And Israel was between, literally between a rock and a hard spot. They didn't know how to go forward because they couldn't pass through that Red Sea, and they definitely weren't going backwards unless they came back as slaves. God miraculously used Moses to open up that Red Sea so those Israelites could go through, and God sent a wind that opened up the Red Sea, and the Israelites went through that Red Sea. They went across a dry shot. Only God could do something like that. As the very last Israelite made his way across, God closed up the waters. And as the Egyptians were inside those waters trying to pursue after, after Israel, they saw that all of the army was there. And they saw with all their chariots, there was nothing they could, they, they tried to turn back and make their way. But as God turned the waters back, all of the Egyptian army was consumed in that water. And from that point on, we see Egypt still as a mighty power. And Egypt is a mighty power is oppressing Israel. We find several times where they're fighting with Israel and dealing with Israel. We look at Egypt today, and Egypt's predominantly a Muslim nation. You study your history, you'll find that there, were several, there have been many different times where Israel and Egypt have had serious conflicts with one another. And during the Great Tribulation, Egypt will be aligned with the Islamic nations against Israel. We jump here now to Isaiah 19. We're going to see what happens to Egypt 
in two time periods. Time period number one is right at that current time within years after this prophecy was written that the Assyrian nation, which became a dominant world player, world power, Syria would come down later on and defeat and overthrow Egypt. And we read about that in chapter 19, verse 4. In chapter 19, verse 4, it says, And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them. That's Assyria. But the second time period, which has not happened yet, but will happen during a time frame called the Great Tribulation. Now let me say this. The Great Tribulation is seven years of the worst time on planet Earth. It's the day of God's wrath. To the Jews, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. The Bible describes in Revelation 6, the day of God's great wrath. The Bible describes in Revelation chapter 3, a time of testing and tribulation. The judgment of God is on this world. And we're going to see how Egypt, God deals with Egypt. And then what happens to Egypt? If you have your notes out this morning, let's get right into our study because we don't have a lot of time left. Number one, I want you to consider with me Egypt conquered. In verses 1 to 10, we see God conquering Egypt. Now remember, as I said earlier, Egypt is always a world power. The Bible says the burden of Egypt. Egypt is under God's hand of judgment. May I pause and remind you today, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this is the judgment. I, I, I urge you this morning, if you're not 100% sure you're saved, you're, under the, you're, gonna be under, you're, you're condemned by God already. God wants you to be saved. Don't leave this life as a person unsaved, winding up spending all of eternity in hell. And we read here in chapter 19, verse 1, as we see Egypt conquered, the first thing we see in verse 1 is a supreme greatness. The Bible says, Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. Now that description of the Lord riding upon a swift cloud defines God as God over all, God above all, and God is greater than all. Amen. God riding upon a swift cloud. No one stops God. No one gets in God's way. Nobody tells God what to do. God gets the first word. God gets the last word. It speaks to us about the sovereignty of God. It speaks about the fact that God is in control when things look like they're out of control. Psalms 47, verse 7 and 8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen, or if you would, over the nations. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. This phrase here, saying that he rides upon a swift cloud, is speaking about the supreme greatness of God. God is on his throne. And by the way, let me say this this morning. Sometimes we use that phrase, God is still on his throne. May I remind you, God has never left his throne. God has never abdicated his throne. God is always on his throne. God is on his throne this morning. We see something else here. We not only see a supreme greatness, but in verses 1 to 10, we see a sobering grief. We see Egypt conquered. And I don't have time to go into all this. You can read through it. But let me give you some, some recap description. First of all, not verse number 1, there will be fear throughout Egypt. Now, if you know anything about Egyptian people, they're pretty, they're pretty brave. They're, 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 uh, 
They, 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 are, they, are, they are a military nation. But the Bible describes it here. He says, and the idols shall be moved at the presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. There'll be fear throughout all of Egypt, because the Bible says, the Lord shall come into Egypt. Verse 2, we read about civil war and internal strife. I will set the Egyptians against Egyptians. He says brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor. He says city against city. Kingdom. I mean, there's going to be total upheaval in Egypt during that time of the Great Tribulation. In verse 3, we read about there's going to be a sense of defeat and, uh, and powerlessness. The Bible says, and the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. There'll be so much confusion. The spirit of even the political leaders are like, we've lost. That spirit of optimism is gone. That spirit of hope is gone. In verse 4, as we said earlier, it speaks about that time and when the Assyrians would take them over and the actual date of the Assyrians conquering them was 670 B.C. under the king Esarhaddon. 670 B.C., Esarhaddon, King Esarhaddon of Assyria. In verses 5 to 10, however, we read something even more interesting. We read about the people, that there's civil strife and family strife, and there's war among the people, and I mean, there's just there's a total turmoil in the nation there, and we read about being a fearful, fearful spirit throughout all the people. They're fearful of the other nations. They don't trust anybody else. We read about the spirit of Egypt failing, but verses 5 to 10 remind us of something that comes right to home. The total economy of Egypt will be, up, will be, just, will, will be, will be upside down, and it will fail. If you know anything about Egypt, the, great, the, the, the greatness of Egypt is because of the Nile River. It's always been the Nile River. The Nile River has been their, their, their tributary, if you would, their avenue for transportation of goods. It's been the transportation route that people have used. You asked the app before COVID-19 and the shutdown of the tourism industry. I mean, people by the droves would go on these tourist trips to go down to do a, a cruise down the Nile River to see it. The Nile River has always been historical. Read through your Old Testament. It has always been historical. And the Nile River has always been a very important part of their commerce. You read about that over in the book of Exodus. And you read about how the very first plague God sent against Egypt was against the Nile River. But the Nile River, during that time, God says that the waters, in verse 5, shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up. A drought will come. We read about that in Revelation. The rivers and brooks will be dried up and emptied out. And all the growth around there, the plant growth, the reeds and the flags that are dependent upon the Nile River, they will, they will dry up. We read about the fact that in verse 7, as we know anything about them, their, their, their manufacturing process. Back in the day, Egypt was very famous for the, for the manufacture of papyri. And papyri was what you would use for the, uh, for the parchment they would use for writing instrument. And we would call it today the paper industry, the timber industry. The Bible says there at that time that the paper reeds of the brooks by the mouth shall wither away. I mean, their paper industry will, will wither up. And then we read about that the river will, 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 will dry up. And we read about the fact later on, you'll notice here it talks about the fishermen in verse 8. The fishing industry will fail. The Bible says the fishers shall mourn and all they that cast angle to the brooks. I mean, I want you to understand right now, God is attacking the very commerce of all of Egypt. The economy of Egypt will fail. How many understand this morning COVID-19 is affecting economies around the world? 
Every single company is going to lose substantial amounts of money if, they've been, if, they, if they're dependent upon export and importing of goods. They're going, to be, they're going to be failing this year. Sales are down. Profits are down. Corporations are closing. Uh, uh, overseas, overseas locations are closing. They're rethinking their manufacturing distribution process. I mean, everything is upside down right now. And listen, if you have one, 12 months of that going on, there's going to be a lot of change happening in the world. Then we read about the garment industry failing. Look, at, look later on here in verse, verse 9. Moreover, they that work in fine flax and they that weave networks shall be confounded. And notice in verse 10, this kind of capsulizes everything. In verse 10 it says, And they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, all that make sluices and ponds for fish. Now, the word sluices is an old English word for wages or finances. Did you get what he said in verse 10? Financially, they're going to be broke. Financially, they're going to be broke. Their system will go. You know what he's saying there? The stock market's going to crash. Real estate prices will crash. Everything's going to go under. The dollar will crash. The monetary values will crash. He's saying here, and they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, and all that makes sluices and pontry. He says, listen, your economy is going to be overthrown. Listen, let me tell you something here. God knows what he's doing. And God if he wants to get the attention of a nation, he will attack its economy. Hey, listen, back in the old days, when enemies, when, when nations warred after each other, the dominant nation, they knew what to do. Before they would attack that, they, before they would attack that nation, they'd cut off their food supply. They'd affect their economy. They would weaken them so they'd be so weak. They can't get water. They can't get food. So you know what they would do? By that time, it made them easy prey for them to attack. And God's saying, okay, I know how to get to you. I don't, need to send, I don't need to send fire and brimstone right now. I'll attack your economy. I'll attack that very thing that you worship. I'll attack that and help you to realize today, you didn't depend upon me. You didn't call upon me. And so I'm going to go after your economy. Wow, man, I'll tell you what, you look at this, Egypt's conquered. But secondly, notice verses 11 to 18, we see Egypt is conned. Egypt is conned. They're confounded. They're in a place of deception. Man, as we read through this, you cannot help but read this, and you're going to say, man, this just sounds like right now what we're living through. Notice what God says here. He says, the very first thing he says in verse 11, Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise, counsels of Pharaoh are become brutish. Notice later on he says again in verse 13, The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. Look at verse 12, something that we read about in 1 Corinthians. He says, Where are they? Where are all thy wise men? You know what he's saying there? All the politicians, all the kings, all the, all, the, all, the, all the different people in influential positions, all the, all the advisors and experts, they may be experts, but they, none of them can agree on what they're talking about. All of them are saying things, and none of it comes together. And you know what it's coming about? It's confusion all through in there, because the Bible says they are deceived. Look at verse 13. The princes of Zoan are become fools, and the princes of Noph are deceived. They also have seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes. They have told them lies, is what the Bible says. Now, how do you understand today? We, you, better, you, you can't trust everything the media tells you because they're telling you lies. You almost have to have a contrarian mindset against everything that the, that the government says or everything perhaps, perhaps the media says to you. Noph and Zoan, two capital cities in Egypt. It's almost like equating it to Washington, D.C. or Sacramento, California. And God's very strong about his language. He says, you know what? I'm not only going to conquer you. I'm going to con you. 
I'm going to show you all that your collective wisdom can't help you. It's just like back in the day when, the, when Pharaoh, back in Genesis, he, no one could interpret his dream, and all the men came, and they all gave different things, and, but no one could give him the answer. And he said, I'm going to kill all of you because you can't give me the right answer. And here we find an entire nation of people that are in confusion, and they're confounded because they don't have the answer. Because you know why the great tribulation? The wrath of God is upon Egypt. Their economy has failed. Pestilence has swept through their land. There are diseases that they have no cures for. And if you talk about... You talk about global climate, the heat will be so intense and their waters will dry up. I mean, all of the terrible things that you could think could happen in every which way, economically, agriculturally, and so forth like that. And socially, they're happy to the nation of Egypt there. And the people are saying, can't you advisors tell us what's going on? Don't you have an answer for this? And they don't have an answer. People want an answer for COVID-19. People want an answer about the vaccine. One day they're for Gilead Science, which is which working on a medication called Rendivisor. Next day they're against Gilead Science because they get a report out of China. How many understand today that you really can't trust all the news coming out of China? And they're saying that the clinical trials we've done have not worked. Well, clinical trials are based upon your sampling. How big is your sampling? And who is in your sampling? And we go on and on about this. You, you look at our economy right now, you've got differences of opinions. You've got health ex, so-called health experts and political experts and economic experts and all these other experts, and none of them can agree when shelter in place should be over. Or how we can gradually reassemble. And there's something else we see interesting. He said in verse 15, neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, branch or rush may do. You know what he's saying there? Everything's upside down. There's no leadership. Where there's no head, there's no tail, there's no leadership. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. Then we read something else interesting. Because remember, leading up to this, Egypt, listen, all the Muslim nations, all the Muslim nations are against Israel. But at that tail end there, the Bible describes this fear in Egypt. It says in verse 16, In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord. Now, he's, God is not talking in a condescending or derogatory manner against women. The nature of a woman as God made her is that she probably would become a little bit more fearful of things than a man might be just because we're made different. The Bible says of a woman that when he made her, she's the weaker vessel physically and perhaps emotionally speaking in that sense. But he's saying here that they, these men, the men of Egypt, the entire population of Egypt, will, will be fearful. In fact, they are so fearful. If you look at verse 17, just the very mention of the name Judah and Egypt will jump. He says, in the land of Egypt shall be, a, uh, the land of Judah shall be a tear unto Egypt. Everyone that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid of. Listen, they're going to be afraid of even the very mention of Judah. Why? Because the hand of God is against Egypt and the hand of God is on Judah. Well, you say, Pastor Fall, man, this is a negative message. I thought you had something encouraging to say. I do. You always save the best for last, amen? It's like when Jesus turned the water into wine, he saved the best for last. And even though we see Egypt conquered and Egypt caught, I remind you this morning as we look at verses 19 to the rest of the chapter, I've got some good news for you. As we look at verses 19 to 25, I want to tell you this morning, we see Egypt converted. Egypt will get saved, believe it or not. 
I said this morning, Egypt will get saved. Can you believe this this morning? When you think about God so loving the world and you think about this nation which has turned its back on God and this nation which has worshipped many idols and this nation which is polytheistic in its ways and worships idols that have hands that cannot move and eyes that cannot see and mouths that cannot speak and is just wooden and stone objects and, and animism and all of these things. Can you imagine that nation will get saved? You say, well, are you pulling... Where'd you get that from? Notice in verse 19. In that day. Several times we read here in verse 19, we read verse 18, we read in that day. And verse 19, in that day. And we read later on, we read in verse 23, in that day. In verse 24, in that day. And the Bible, we read later on in, in between all this, we also see the phrase, it shall be. It's coming. And the timeline when it's coming is at the end of the great tribulation as we enter into the, the great millennial period of the reign of Jesus Christ when Jesus, his second coming, he comes again and establishes his kingdom on earth. Praise the Lord. It's coming. All these bad things have happened to Egypt. At what point is Egypt going to work, God going to work in Egypt to bring Egypt? You say they're going to get, how do you know that? Well, let me use an example. And I'll show you the verse. I've said this from the beginning of COVID-19. I've probably said it publicly here. I, I know I have. And I've said this in private to people in groups. COVID-19 is very simple. God, God, God can stop it right now. There's just one word that, there's just one word we have to follow. Repentance. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13 and 14. If we repent, listen, if people would cry out to God and say, God, this is terrible, we repent of our sins, God promises in 2 Chronicles 7, 13, 14 that he would take away the pestilence. You know what? The problem with America and all the nations of the world, it's happening there, but they don't feel it. Nobody's bothered by the millions of people infected, and nobody's bothered by the thousands of deaths, and they're all bad, and they're all tragic, and they're all terrible, especially if it's somebody you know or somebody you love. But they don't feel it. You know what people are most worried about? You know what people are worried about? They're not, they're not concerned about getting right with God. They're not worried about repentance. They're not worried about the hand of God being stayed off this pest. You know what they're worried about? When's shelter in place going to be over? You know what they're worried about? The sun's out. Why don't you open up the beaches and the park for us to go back out? Oh, why don't you let us go back to our jobs and let us go back to our normal life? Can I tell you what? The only kind of life that's a normal life is a life that's in love with Jesus Christ. Your idea of a normal life of going down to the mall and going down to Great America and getting online and ordering everything you can off of Amazon.com and going and buying all these shopping sprees and whatever else you may be and partying it up and drinking and cavorting and all that stuff. Listen, God has shut down the bars. God has shut down the theaters. God has shut down everything going on there. Why? Because God wants us to understand that is not the normal life. The normal life is getting saved. The normal life is trusting Jesus Christ, your Savior, and living for God and going to church and being in the Bible and praying that's the normal life, my friend. They didn't feel it. They don't feel it now. And they didn't listen, but I'll tell you what, when you feel it, <laughs> when you feel it, you turn to God. And notice our passage this morning. Look at verse 20. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness. Unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Now, this is important. 
It's not by chance. It's by God. He says, it shall be for a sign and a witness to the Lord. And notice what it says. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. Now what's happening in Egypt? Egypt's going to be the place I just described. They feel it. They feel the financial crash. They feel the financial disaster. They feel the fear. They feel the collapse of their paper industry. They feel the collapse of the Nile River. They feel the collapse of their fishing industry. They feel the collapse of all these things. They feel the fact. They understand our politicians and our leaders can't help us. They feel it. And the Bible says for the very first time, they're not crying to Allah. They're crying to God. They're not going to a mosque. They're looking for the Lord God. They're crying out to God. They're crying out to God for the oppressors. Notice a wonderful statement in verse 20. Would you notice this? This is what makes it so wonderful. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he, who's he? God. And he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. Let me read that to you again. He shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. He shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. Who is that? That's Jesus. Amen. That's Jesus. He sent Jesus, who is a savior. And by the way, he is the great one. He's the great and mighty God. He sent Jesus to save them. He sent Jesus to deliver them. Now, when did he do that? He did that 2,000 years ago. At the time this was written, the prophecy of Jesus coming to die for our sins would be just a few chapters later in Isaiah 53. And it would be later fulfilled in, when we read the Gospels. A Savior who's someone who saves you out of trouble. He's the only one that can deliver you out of the problem that you're in. A Savior literally has the idea of saving someone from destruction. Saving someone from perishing. Saving someone from a fate that is worse than anything they can imagine. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you and I, in our spirit and soul, are just like Egypt. We are proud. We're independent. We're rebellious. We're disobedient children. We may think we're good, but the Bible says all of our, filth, all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. The Bible says everything good we do is equated to like a filthy, dirty cloth. He says all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Now before you go on, I want to tell you this morning, God pops our self-righteous bubble today. God pops our self-righteous bubble and helps us to understand there's nobody that's 100% perfect. There's nobody that's 100% pure. There's nobody 100% holy. Only God is holy. Only God is sinless. And so God, because of that, God has to punish sin. Look what happens here. Egypt sins. He enumerates all of Egypt's sins. Their idolatry. They're trusting in self. They're, 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 they're trusting their politicians instead of trusting God. And all, everything, everything in Egypt's life has failed. And now they're crying out to God. And they're realizing for the very first time, thousands of years ago, Jesus Christ was on earth. And they missed the opportunity of trusting him. Listen, did you even know in Matthew chapter 2 that Joseph took the baby, the infant child Jesus, down into Egypt? Did you even know that there were many times that because of the commerce between Egypt and Israel during that time, that they had opportunity to come to Jesus Christ, but they did not? They continued worshiping their idols? God loves you and me and the world so much. He sent us a Savior and a great one. 
In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. Did you get this? I only finished and went halfway. We're sinners. God has to punish sin, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, we have to be punished for our sin, but here's the good news. God sent us a Savior, and he sent us a great one. And he, did, he sent us the only one who could save us from our sin. Because Jesus is God who became man, yet without sin. And he walked the shores of Galilee, and he, he, he did many good works, all of those things. But I want to tell you, he didn't come to be a great teacher. And he didn't come just to be a, a prophet. And he didn't just come just to be a high priest. And he did not come for all these things came for one reason. He came to take your place and my place on the cross and to die for our sins, to shed his blood, which would be the payment price for sin, so that your sins could be paid for in full and heaven could be your home. And Egypt is crying out for help. They're saying, God, we can't take this any longer. God, we don't want to be under your judgment anymore. God, we realize you are the only God. And the Bible says he sent them a Savior. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved, notice this, from wrath through him. They want to be saved from the wrath of God. Because you know what they're seeing? They're seeing this world situation at the end of the tribulation. Jesus is coming back. They're seeing Jesus is coming back, and he's going to defeat the nations of the world. And we're not told this, but I'm, I'm certain somewhere along the way, they've got a copy of the Word of God, and they started reading about what's the Bible have to say about Egypt. And they may have come here right to Isaiah chapter 19. The Bible says he shall send them a Savior and a great one. Listen, Egypt will get saved at the end of the Great Tribulation. Egypt will be one of the saved nations. Egypt experiences the love of God in their hearts. Egypt re realizes that God loves them, and Christ died for their sins, and he's the great one and can deliver them. You mark this down. We know from the Bible, Egypt's going to get saved. That sounds impossible. <laughs> Egypt's going to get saved. So some of us ask the question, how do you know they're really saved? But you notice the Bible describes the fruit of their salvation. Notice verse 18. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan. And you might want to put in your margin there, Zephaniah 3.9. Zephaniah, hear what he's saying here. He says, in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. You know what's happening there? When they get saved, listen, the Egyptians will be speaking Hebrew. Five cities in the land of Egypt shall speak the language of Canaan. The Bible describes in Zephaniah 3.9 as a pure language. You know what that's saying to us? They're no longer enemies. Israel, they're not realizing that everything Israel, everything about Israel and the worship of God, and by the way, during the tribulation, Israel's turned to God. They recognize Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the Bible says they will speak the same language. You know what's great about getting saved? We all speak the same language, amen? We all are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all equal in Jesus Christ. We have the same spirit. That's why I love Ephesians chapter 4. There's one God, one faith, one baptism. Listen, this morning, we thank God today. We can endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Listen, if you're saved, you ought to be speaking the same language. If you're a member of Heritage Baptist Church, we ought to be speaking the same thing and realize hey, that language we speak, mainly, we're not talking about a foreign language. We're talking about the language of the Bible, the language of God. But there's other fruit. Notice this, verse 19. 
The Bible says, verse 19, they'll build, build an altar to the Lord and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. Hey, that's amazing. They're going to worship God. They're going to establish a memorial to God. Altars represent worship, and memorials, pillars represent memorials. They're going to build an altar and memorial. You know what they're going to do? They're going to make it known throughout Egypt. They're getting rid of all of their, they're getting rid of all of their idols. All the idols are coming down. They're breaking all the idols, and they're establishing altars there. They're telling people, no, there's only one God we worship. We don't believe in multi-gods. We're not polytheistic. There's only one God. And they realize from the reading of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, you, thou shalt have no other God before me. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that day, looking down from heaven, watching this go on. This is going to be wonderful. Notice verse 21, and the Lord shall be known in Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. Praise God. He says in verse 22, and the Lord shall smite Egypt, and he shall heal it. He, they, and, and they shall return to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them, and he shall heal them. Now, you know what he's saying there? God is smiting, going to be smiting them during that tribulation period. God has smitten them before. He's going to smite them again. But you know what he's saying there? God's going to heal them. That's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. He's going to heal them of their sins. He's going to forgive them of their sins. He's going to wash away their iniquities. The Lord shall heal them. Let me tell you today, our soul is injured, and our soul is wounded, and our soul is broken, and our soul is bleeding because of sin in our life. Do you understand this morning that sin breaks every individual? Do you understand this morning sin wounds every individual? Do you understand this morning that sin disables every individual? And it's pictured as blindness, and it's pictured as an infirmity, it's pictured as leprosy, but I'm here to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter if you have an issue of blood that no doctor can heal and it does not matter if you've got a if you've got a withered up hand and you're blind and you're deaf whatever spiritually speaking all these things i want to tell you it doesn't matter what that infirmity is we have a lord who heals and god wants to say here no matter what sin has done to you he can heal you of your sins he can restore you he can give you hope he can make you whole he can make you somebody useful to god egypt's converted Did you know you can be converted this morning? Did you know you can be saved this morning? Did you know no matter what kind of sinner you are, you can be saved this morning because God has sent you a Savior and a great one who can deliver you right now. By the way, if you're a Christian living, struggling with sin in your life, you feel like the Lord has smitten you, he may have chastened you, but he'll heal you. He'll restore you. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. God doesn't leave a wound on us and lets us languish. He pulls us, to his, he pulls us to his bosom and holds us very comfortably and lovingly and gives us assurance that we're loved. Lastly, would you notice the final verses? We, know, we see Egypt conquered, Egypt conned, Egypt converted, but notice Egypt confederate. If we go to verses 23, 25, we're now in the millennial period. The rapture's occurred. We're taken up. Seven years of terrible tribulation. The end of the tribulation period, it'll, it'll end when Jesus comes from heaven, and we're coming with him. Amen. We're part of that great army of God. The kingdom of Christ and of God will be established on earth for 1,000 years. In verse 23, he says, There shall be a highway. This is great. There shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will come to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve the Assyrians. You know what he's saying there? 
You know what he's saying there? Because along the, he's, God, God's going to establish a pathway. Egypt is not going to have any more enemies. Assyria is not going to bother them anymore. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria down to Egypt. And by the way, they've got to pass through Israel along the way. And we're looking at the millennial period. You know what he's saying there? It's what we read about a little bit earlier and we'll speak more about. The, the, the millennial period will be a time of unprecedented peace. Unprecedented serenity. Unprecedented calmness such as the world has never known. There will be no war. The aging process will slow down. There will be great abundance and nothing but the worship of God. And the centrality of worship will be the city of Jerusalem. In verse 24, something remarkable. Would you notice in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Three countries right, right then when this was written that are adversarial to each other and hating each other's guts, literally. They will be one-third, one-third. What are you saying there? He said, you know what? They're going to be brothers in Christ. Now, if you've got some problem with somebody else that's a Christian, it's time to grow up and be a brother or sister in Christ. Amen. Because look what he says here. Even... He's talking about Israel, a blessing in the midst of the land. Remember I said earlier, Israel is a curse to those Arabic nations, those Muslim nations. But in that day, Israel is a blessing. A blessing in the land. Every nation is going to realize, they who bless me, they who bless Israel will be blessed. God told that to Abraham back in Genesis 12. It's still happening. Those who bless me, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. Remarkable thing, blessing in the land. You know, God saved you and me to be a blessing in the land. God saved you and me to make a difference in the world. God saved you and me to be a blessing to people during COVID-19. That's why we have this HBC Cares COVID-19 ministry that God has opened the door, and we're going to get the opportunity to minister, listen, to several thousand people. We've had seven weeks where we've had to rethink and we pray about God, how, how can we be a, a, a soul-winning church, an evangelistic church, and God has opened a door and made a way. And by the way, we did not have a contact into the first hospital we're in, and we didn't have a contact to the, that could get us into the other one. Right? We had to work our way through there, but God opened the door, and we had no resistance. And I've got a fourth one that just came to me last night. We've had no resistance. And they welcomed us and said, thank you for what you're doing. And we're bathing this in prayer, saying, God, don't let anybody get sick. And Lord, help us to do, a, do it right and help us get things going. And we had a meeting yesterday with all the parties involved with us to make sure everything's going to flow for Tuesday and Thursday. You know what my goal and my prayer is? I want our church to be a blessing in the land. I want our church to be a blessing to your employer. I want our church to be a blessing to your neighbor. I want our church to be a blessing to our mayor and our city council. I want our church to be a blessing to our, our, our first responders. Listen, this morning, we want our church to be a blessing to those frontliners. Then he said in verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless. And would you notice this? This is so good. Blessed be Egypt, my people. That's great. They became a people. They will become a people of God. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And he speaks about Israel. Nothing ever changed with Israel. Israel, my inheritance. What about Egypt today, preacher? Well, God's setting the way. Did you know that? God's setting the way right now for everything we just read. God loves the world. God loves every nation. 
He tells us in Acts 1.8 that we're to take the gospel and be a witness to every nation and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what does it all mean then today? Do you know what it all means? We're getting closer to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming soon. Now, I don't know why, but it could be that the Lord might want me to get as far as his will is in preaching through prophecy, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. So as a church, we are well informed before we go to heaven what God's going to do because it's all here. And so that we are prepared and ready for the trumpet call when he says, come up hither. That we're ready for Jesus' coming that we love his appearing, that we're looking for his appearing, that we can't wait for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not worrying about the signs. We're we're listening for the sounds. Jesus is coming soon. I said Jesus is coming soon. I said Jesus is coming soon for us. And all this is written that you and I would awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. Now's the time to be a blessing in the land. If you've been thinking about sending a love offering over and above your tithe and faith promise and building offering to COVID-19, the COVID-19 outreach, you ought to do that today. If you have not, if you've not been, uh, if you've forgotten about your faith promise mission support, you can be a blessing to the lands and send it today. Now's the time to, just like Egypt does with Israel and Assyria, you can be a loving brother and a loving sister. Now is the time to call on the one who God sent as a Savior and a great one to save you from your sins. Hey, this morning, what wonderful news today. He shall send them a Savior and a great one and a deliverer. His name is Jesus. Him has God exalted by his right hand to be a prince and a Savior. Friend, this morning, if you're not 100% sure you're saved and going to heaven, would you just, from the humility of your heart, watching by live stream, call on Jesus this morning to save you? I'll help you with that. Christian friend, are you ready for his coming? Can you think about someone you know that you can be a blessing to? Can you think about being at peace with all men? And when we reassemble, the greatest revival we can have be a revival of the love of God in, in our midst. How about it this morning? A blessing in the land. In that day, it shall be.